You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com, please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 88, by Rudolf Steiner, translated by James Hines, entitled Concerning the Astral World and Devakan. This is Lecture 8.2, entitled The World of Spirit, or Devakan Part 2, given in Berlin on February 4, 1904. When the ideas concerning the actual spiritual world, so-called Devakan, that theosophy seeks to awaken, are held to be totally improbable, then we can respond that when a theosophist points to these higher worlds that exist beyond our world of the senses, it is not anything new or at all alien. In order to guide our thoughts somewhat more deeply into this world of Devakan, today I would like to begin my lecture with the words of a German thinker, well known to you all, who exerted a great influence on his time, and who knew how to speak of higher worlds, not in any dreamy way, but rather who knew how to intervene in the events of his time through the power and the fire of his words, Johann Gottlieb Fichte. We all know the power he drew from the suprasensory world, the power that made his fiery speech overflow. With this speech he inspired the youth of his time to participate in the events that were necessary at that time. We know his book, titled Address to the German Nation. His introductory lectures were a deed that does not belong in a dreamy world, but rather belongs to immediate reality. As he held these introductory lectures into the science of knowledge, Johann Gottlieb Fichte presented them as the ripe fruit of his research and meditation. He began them with the following sentence, quote, This teaching presupposes the existence of an entirely new inner sensory instrument through which a new world is opened up, a world that simply does not exist for the ordinary person. This should not be understood as an exaggeration, a rhetorical phrase said only to demand much with a quiet modesty, so that less may be granted, it is rather to be understood literally, as it stands. Quote. Fichte introduced this view of the suprasensory world at a time when no one had thought of a theosophical society, with words that indicate that he is going to impart information from a sense organ or instrument that is not present in ordinary people. In the same series of lectures, he explained further, quote, Imagine a world of people all born blind. They can know about the existence and interrelationships of things that exist only for the sense of touch. If you talk to them about colors and about other relationships that exist only through light and the sense of sight, you might as well be saying nothing at all. Or for some reason or another they want to give your teaching a meaning, then they would be able to understand your teaching through what they know through the sense of touch. Close quote. There would be an entirely new situation if someone born blind could begin to see through an operation. This comparison is correct with respect to higher vision. What is not expressed by Fichte is that 
actually everyone has this instrument and need only develop it. One needs only a good will in order to have the spiritual world revealed. Everyone who is spiritually blind can be given vision. This must be stressed so that it is clear that the spiritual world can become accessible to everyone who wishes to seek it. The information given about that world is intended only to point to what will be given later. The first step is to receive a description of the spiritual world. As theosophists know, it is a path to receive a first insight through description of that world. We are dealing here with a world that is not located in any other place in the cosmos, but rather a world that everywhere surrounds us, which is present everywhere around us. The spiritual world is present at every point of our world at the same time. When we speak of the spiritual world of Devakan, we are not wandering around in a different world, but rather it is an opening of organs of perception, the achievement of another state of mind. One could object that such a state in a human being is something extraordinary, that it is not possible to form any idea of that state, and that nothing similar can be shown in the life of a human being. But this is not correct. The rest of life continues to flow calmly past without any radical revolution. As a matter of fact, however, a transition does take place once in a person's life that is similar to the change that makes a person with physical senses into a seer. But we are unaware of it. Everyone sitting here has already gone through a similar radical revolution in his or her consciousness at least once in life. We must think of life beginning not just when we first see the light of the external world, but from the moment of conception. If we observe human beings from their very first phase in the body of the mother, then everyone has experienced such a revolution. The state of consciousness of an embryo, its ability to perceive is entirely different from that of a human being later. Those who know how to observe this know the important things that happen to human beings in the first months of existence before birth. They know that the human ability to perceive is radically changed already with birth. An embryo has an ability to perceive that is essentially different from that of a human being who has seen the light of the world and developed a wakeful consciousness. An embryo perceives in a way that we characterize as an astral capacity to perceive. Thus the human embryo has an astral perception. Wakeful consciousness is developed only later. The human being evolves from an astral life to a conscious life. The opening of the so-called devakonic senses that are bestowed upon a seer so that he or she can perceive a new world is a change similar to that at birth. An embryo perceives, as a matter of fact, the dark streams in the astral world. It perceives the emotions holding sway in its environment. You can see this in the influences exerted on the embryo by the conditions present in the womb. This transition or changeover from an astral consciousness in the embryo to a wakeful consciousness in the world of the senses occurs in every human being. The new condition of consciousness opened for us 
is thus the world in which we live. We cannot at first understand what we perceive in this world. We are guided, step by step, to perception in the world of Devakan or spirit. Our perception of Devakan is the same as with a child when its senses are opened in the first days of life. A world opens for us that is at first not understandable. It announces itself in glittering color tones and in a sequence of varying sounds. At first we do not know how to interpret these colors and sounds that do not belong to our physical world, that are essentially different from the colors and sounds of our physical world. We can interpret them only when we have come to know their meanings and connections. Those who enter this world with no guidance often have no idea how to orient themselves. It sometimes happens that the devakonic sense is suddenly opened for someone. Such a person would then roam confused around in this world of spiritual existence. Learning the meaning of these phenomena is possible only for those who are led into this world by a person who is already a seer, who can introduce them methodically into this spiritual world. Students then learn how to organize and combine the sequence of sounds and colors, just as we combine consonants and vowels into meaningful words. The sounds and colors of the spiritual world appear to us as consonants and vowels, and when we find out what the consonants and vowels signify, we achieve the ability to spell and read. We discover that a certain kind of being that lives in the spiritual world manifests itself to us through the language of these colors and sounds. This is the training offered to the cellas, the students, who are to enter these higher worlds in order to participate in these higher truths. We then learn that the appearance of colors, sounds and forms is not an accident, but that what appears to us there is the expression of spiritual beings whose language we perceive. When we have learned to know and read the letters, then an entirely new world is open to us. I have indicated that a world lower than the Devakonic world is integrated into our physical world, a world that we get to know first. That is the astral world. At times it blends together with the world of Devakon. For a while, at the beginning, one cannot exactly distinguish what belongs to the astral world and what belongs to the Devakonic world. Only gradually do we learn how to distinguish them. Using an example, today I would like to show how one can learn to distinguish between what belongs to the astral world and what is of the Devakonic world, the spiritual world, which is our actual home. The human being we encounter in the physical world is only a part of the human being. The truth is that for a seer, Human beings are beings with entirely other sides to their existence than those that appear to physical eyes. I am speaking of what is known as the human aura. The human aura is something that is essential to the whole human being. In the eighth installment of title Lucifer, I described in an introductory fashion part of this human aura. It is something that appears to a seer just as the ordinary physical form appears to human physical eyes. The physical form is merely the middle part of the human being, which rests in an oval-shaped, foggy cloud, so to speak, 
This foggy cloud, the aura, belongs to the human body of spirit just as it belongs to the physical human being. The cloud is much larger than the physical human being. On average, it is twice as long and three to four times as wide. Light forms and color forms of the most varied kind appear to the eyes of a seer as a continuation of the physical body. The aura of a human being, this body of light, does not appear as an indefinite, more or less organized cloud of colors, but as kind of a mirror or imprint of what is going on in the human being. The passions, instincts, drives of a human being are imprinted in this aura. Everything we call inner life is imprinted within. The physics of the present time should find all this very understandable when we speak of this phenomenon. What do physicists say? They present vibrating movements of the ether. This vibrating movement is transformed into colors in the external world. It is the same with our inner world. There are instincts, drives, and passions within us. They go forth from every human being who stands in front of us. And just as color is visible to us in the external world, so too ideas, feelings, and sensations are translated by the spiritual eye, E-Y-E, into a colorful aura. As the physical world appears in color to the physical eye, so do spiritual beings appear to the spiritual eye in a wonderful display of scintillating colors, but in a higher region. The spiritual world displays an amazing mobility of colors. We see people surrounded by an oval body of light in which they are swimming. This oval body is not at rest, but appears as if flowing and streaming, and then loses itself a certain distance from the physical body. In the space of Devakan, which constantly appears in movement, the human being has a fundamental color. Enduring moods in a human being, also enduring character, peculiarities, are revealed in the aura through an enduring coloring formed by clouds, which these colors stream through in the form of waves. We see wave-shaped streams moving through the aura from below to above. We see them shoot through like lightning. They move through the aura as bluish-red, brownish-red, and beautiful bluish colors. We see the most manifold in various colors, which change according to various causes. You can go into a church and observe the auras of the devoted souls. You will find there entirely different color tones, than you find in a gathering of people in which political passions or human egotism makes itself felt. The soul moods that our daily needs bring us, you will see streaming forth as forms of brick red and carmine red. Sometimes they will have a darker, nuanced color. And if you go into a church and observe people filled with devotion, then you see an interplay of blue, indigo, violet, and rose red. If you investigate the auras of people who live in a thought world contemplating scientific problems, then you will see thought forms shining forth from within their aura. These thought forms reflect thoughts that reveal in their aura that there are no passions shooting through them. When we learn what the aura shows us, then on one hand we can read the moods and temperaments living in people and see what is reflected in their consciousness. 
On the other hand, we can also see reflected all their thoughts, from the most everyday up to the highest, most spiritual, up to feelings of devotion to the divine and the loftiest compassion. When starting out, we cannot separate anything, but gradually we learn to do this, and notice that there are two sharply distinguished forms in the aura. First of all, there are cloud-like shapes with indeterminate outlines that stream in more from the periphery of the head. We learn to separate these cloud-like shapes from the phenomena that go forth more from the heart, chest, and head, and have a more radiant character. These radiations always proceed from an inner middle point. We learn to distinguish the cloud-like shapes from those having a radiant character. The cloud-like formations, which vary from brown into dark orange, come from the bodily nature, from the human lower nature, from passions and drives. Thus we distinguish in the aura the spiritual part from the lower, more astral part. We learn to distinguish the colors that appear most often. The auras of Europeans today are usually green-colored, often shading into yellow. This green represents the actual intellectual part, the conscious part. Thus it expresses the fundamental mood of the soul life of today's European. You can experience a strange perception with people who are in a trance. All green disappears from their aura. Anyone who can perceive the aura will have an easy time distinguishing between a person who is actually in a trance and someone who is pretending to be in one. So too, a doctor working in a clinic experimenting with hypnosis, something we regard as unacceptable, even though it sometimes happens, could ascertain clearly whether an experimental subject is being deceptive or whether the subject is really in a trance state. The green in the aura would disappear. The green tones disappear also in the case of someone who passes out, and they also always disappear from the aura of someone asleep. The first ability to be developed in a seer is the ability to see the human aura. Seers develop the ability to get this information about human beings relatively fast, and they learn to distinguish the astral aura from the mental aura. The radiating aura is from the world of Devakan. It is spirit and belongs to the part of a human being that continues to exist after death. It is what originates in our true spiritual home. What shifts from brownish into greenish in color belongs to the transitory part of the human being. We shed it with our physical sheath, or in Kamaloka, in order then to enter the actual spiritual world. It is a higher kind of perception, a higher kind of spiritual sense when the sense for Devakan opens. The Devakonic world is especially different from the physical world. The physical world is unmoving and dead, while the Devakonic world manifests a manifoldness and flexible mobility without comparison. It is an inwardly mobile world in constant movement. Now, students striving for a higher development must learn to find their way within this world of Devakon. When we perceive in the world of physical things, the things remain as they are, and our ideas of them are formed according to the things. The table and chair remain still. They do not adjust themselves according to my ideas.
but rather my ideas must adjust themselves according to the table and the chair. This is not the case in the spiritual world. There is nothing in Devakan that holds still. And for this reason, those who enter Devakan have an enormous responsibility. Thoughts in the external physical world are only a shadow of reality compared with thoughts in Devakan. The actual real thoughts do not live in our brain. What appears in our consciousness is not a shadow picture or reflection, but rather a being that lives in Devakan. In truth, our thoughts are beings that belong in the spiritual world. When you grasp a thought, you bring about a change in the world of Devakan. In order to make this clear, I would like to show you an example of what happens in the world of Devakan when you grasp a thought. Those whose senses have been opened to Devakan see not merely the shadows of thoughts, but rather the being of the thought itself as an actual object. Imagine you are harboring some thought or another, say a thought concerned with another person. The thought is visible for a seer. The thought rays forth as a wave of light from a light source. And just as light streams forth in all directions from a flame, so too does the thinking human being stream forth in all directions. And as light spreads in the physical world, so too do the rays of thoughts ray out into the world of Devakan, so that we can actually see thoughts raying forth from every human being. For this reason, you will understand why Christ is portrayed with a crown of light rays. That is not a fantasy of any kind, but rather it corresponds to a perception in higher perceiving. When thoughts ray forth, they begin in space and spread in space the same way light rays forth in space. Let us consider a specific thought. If this thought is conceived so that it is focused on you, so that it concerns only you, then it rays forth only in that way. But if it is concerned with another person, then in Devakan it behaves just as light does when it encounters an object and is reflected back. And just as an object appears illuminated by light, so also the individual involved appears illuminated by the world of thought. If someone sends out a thought related to another person, for example a wish for the other person to be healthy, then we can see this thought radiating and spreading out in all directions. But this thought directed toward one person does not simply stream through Devakonic space. It seeks to be realized in the space immediately surrounding the person. This thought then streams to the person with whom it is connected. These are processes such as you can see in the world of Devakan. You can perceive how lofty human thoughts are caught up in Devakonic space and are formed into a kind of flower form, into beautiful geometric figures such as are not present on earth. Although it may appear to be fanciful, this is all genuine reality for those who can observe in Devakan. Those who learn to move around in Devakan learn to send out their thoughts in a conscious way and are aware of the harvest they will have through these thoughts. They learn that every thought in Devakan is a fact and they endeavor to bring forth only beneficial effects with their thoughts. Those who have not been initiated send their thoughts at random into Devakan, while initiates have learned to give their thoughts form. 
That is what gradually happens as an esoteric student progresses. I would still like to draw your attention to something remarkable. The last time I spoke about the fact that in Devakan there are two departments, so to speak. There is a lower department, Rupa Devakan, which is the world of the Devakanic continents, the Devakanic sea, and the Devakanic atmosphere. These are fundamentally permeated through and through by feelings. Then I described the Akashic matter, the pure etheric matter of Devakan. Those are all the lower regions of Devakan. Then come the three higher regions of Arupa Devakan. The highest spiritual beings, the Dhyana Chohans, the spirits of the planets, and so forth, stay in these higher regions. The beings we know as Mahatmas, the spiritual leaders of humanity, also belong to these higher spiritual beings. These beings have achieved such an elevated stage of evolution that they can teach the rest of humanity the great truths of existence. Those human beings whose devakonic senses have opened, who are in a position to observe in devakon, are also able to converse with these advanced human spirits. They learn to understand the language in which these spirits communicate, and they also learn how to speak to them. They are then obliged to translate the messages received in this way into everyday language. Teachings translated in this way are what we proclaim as theosophical truths. These truths originally came down to us from our highly developed human brothers and sisters. They were then conveyed to us by suitably qualified individual personalities. After we have learned to, in quotes, read, we understand the most ancient eternal secrets of the world. In order to translate them into everyday language, we must learn to look up to these sublime spirits, the masters, which we in theosophy call Mahatmas. It is particularly interesting to observe how a chela relates to these masters in the world of Devakan. I have already described how thoughts in Devakan behave, how they stream forth to fulfill their destiny. That is not the case, or not in the same way, with thoughts that a chela sends upward in devotion to the masters or mahatmas, in order to inquire about information concerning the deepest truths. The thought that the chela sends up to the spiritual leaders follows a very special path, different from that of ordinary thoughts. It is as if the thought did not stream fully up to the goal of its intent. This thought, this call for knowledge concerning higher worlds, at first streams into the region that I have called the Akasha region. Then the thought turns and returns to the student, but not the same way it ascended, but rather enriched and glowing with what comes forth from the Master. This is how it is to be understood when it is always stressed that the Master is the higher self of the human being. In a certain way our own thoughts speak to us when we enter into conversation with these more highly evolved human spirits. Nothing foreign to us should be transferred into us. The masters do not want to make us into slaves in spirit. For this reason, the masters do not send us their thoughts, but our own, so that we recognize that it is the substance that we ourselves have let stream forth. These are individual processes, which those experience 
who are in a position as incarnated beings between birth and death to move about within Devakan. It is those whose sense for Devakan has already been opened here in a bodily nature, those who can lift their spirit out of the shell of their bodily nature. We also find in Devakan lower beings in great number who are present there as regular inhabitants. These are beings who are disembodied for a short while, that is, those who stand between two incarnations. People spend a long time in Devakan between two incarnations. Today I have described the experiences that those who are still embodied can have in Devakan. The next time I would like to describe to you what those experience who are embodied in Devakan, that is, the course of our stay in Devakan between two lives, that will supplement our view in an essential way, and if you then add that picture to the one I have provided today, you will have the ability to understand the world of Devakan in clear pictures. You will understand much of what initiates are really saying, without its being expressed in ordinary daily usage or in our literature. Until the 19th century, initiates have always spoken in hints and allusions. The allusions have always been understandable for those whose sense has been opened for them. For those who know the world of causes, for them the words of an initiate, who is usually not recognized as one, for instance Goethe, are properly understood. Goethe himself said that much was, in quotes, secreted. German is hin ein Geheimnist into the second part of his Faust, which only initiates would understand. In mythical, clear language, he pointed out what the earthly sense perceptible is for him. The earthly points to a higher world, of which it is the expression. If we understand this properly, then we will know that Goethe, as an initiate of higher knowledge, drew from the suprasensory world. Then we understand what he was saying, with the words, quote, everything transitory is but a parable. The unattainable becomes an event here. The indescribable is done here. Close quote. The Theosophical Society wants to describe gradually what many have held as, in quotes, indescribable. The end of Lecture 8.2